Well, good evening. I invite you to stand and let's worship our risen Savior this evening. I believe in the Son. I believe in the risen one. I believe I overcome by the power of His says, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. No matter our season of life, no matter what's going on, it's always good to bless the Lord and give him praise. And take every blessing that he blesses with us and return it to him as a praise offering. Let's see. 
things in your life since we last met, just take a moment and say thank you to your God. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for a good doctor's report. Thank you for, you fill in the blank. Just take a moment to thank your good Heavenly Father.
refreshing, God, it is to be in your presence. To worship you, to bless your name from the depths of our soul. To be reminded of all that you've done for us. We are blessed people. But even if we didn't receive those blessings, you are still good. And even in those times when we may not see any response to our prayers or see you working on our behalf, or we feel that you're far away, it doesn't change the fact that, God, you are good and that you love us deeply. And you have regenerated our spirit being into the likeness of Jesus. We are new creatures. Everything in our past is gone. And all we have to do is keep looking forward, keeping our eyes on you. So we love you this evening. We say thank you. We thank you that because you live, can stand here today we can face tomorrow next week knowing that you're good in Jesus name amen you may be seated you would find your way over to second Corinthians chapter 3 verses 4 chapter 3 and, and chapter 4 that's what we're going to be doing taking a look at at Paul in writing this letter to the church of Corinth one of the elements that we're going to see within the, the text and this is this concept of the fact that he writes to the Corinthians there and says to them, you are living letters. I got to thinking about that a little bit. If you're a living letter, letters are meant to be read, what is the message that you send? When people were to look at your life, what do you communicate? Paul would talk about this church being living letters. And the idea of, from Paul's perspective, is as a living letter, you're revealing the unveiled glory of God as a living letter. To put it in simple terms, you get to be Jesus with skin on. You get to be a reflection of the glory of God through your life. Now, he's writing to the church in Corinth, defending his ministry, his apostolic ministry, because by this time, after starting the church, spending time with the church, and he spent some time away, there were some people that had come in that were trying to undermine his ministry and under, undermine the gospel message that is there. And in this, Paul is looking at validating his ministry in the eyes of the people in Corinth, because he has to come back and he has to defend, feels like he has to defend his ministry in light of everything that's gone on in his absence within this letter. And one of the things that he is going to do is he's going to contrast the old Mosaic covenant versus the new covenant that is there. Because what had happened was the Judaizers were coming in behind Paul and they were trying to undermine his ministry everywhere where Paul had gone. These Jews were going to these Gentile Christians saying, oh, no, 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 Paul wasn't all that. In fact, you know, Paul's not teaching the whole story. We have more that we need to tell you. We, we need you to come back to the law. 
And so Paul, in defending his ministry, especially tonight, and, and some of these aspects, he's going to be bringing out the contrast of the what the old Mosaic law had done and, and the foundations of it, being written in stone, and the conversation that God would have with the nation of Israel via that writing on stone, that letter that was on the stone tablet, versus how God communicates today and the writing on the hearts of his people. And so he'll con- make these contrasts that are there. As these Judaizers would come in and try to pull the Gentiles back to legalism, is there a tendency for people to fall back into legalism today? Why? Why is it, it baffles my mind, why is it that people want to fall back into legalism when you can have so much freedom? Well, you know what comes with legalism? A sense of self-righteousness. In other words, I'm checking the boxes. And if I'm checking the boxes, I must be right. But what it does in legalism and checking the boxes and working through the law is it keeps you from having to have a genuine relationship with God via the Spirit. And you can get a false sense of security within this. And so Paul, as he writes, he's really writing out of passion. And as something we're going to see at the end of our section here in chapter 4, that I want you to really grab a hold of. Paul doesn't have to do this. He really doesn't have to be missional, nor does he have to be a missionary to the church of Corinth. He doesn't have to do it, does he? Why would he? I mean, you think about all the things that we're going to read about what happens to Paul. You don't sign up for this kind of stuff. Why is it that he's doing it? I mean, if they don't want to listen to him, then why don't you just say, okay, fine, you're on your own. Why does he keep coming back for more? Why, why does he serve the very people that are rejecting him? It's an interesting enigma that, that comes with the heart of pastoral ministry or this apostolic ministry or missional living is the fact that you are going places where people aren't necessarily going to like you. And, that's, and so you go, why? Because it makes nuts. It just makes you crazy when you think about it. So we look at this, and we're going to start out here with uh, chapter 3, verse 1. And 1 through 3 is Paul is looking at validating his ministry. And, and one of the things that we'll see in this first part in verses 1 through 3 is the fact that transformed lives are validating the ministry of Paul. Are we beginning, as he says here in verse 1, to commend ourselves again? Or do we need some letters of commendation to you or from you? Paul's sarcasm is thick. You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifest that you are a letter of, care, a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. And so he starts out with, uh, just a little bit of sarcasm, and he says, look at, do we need to commend ourselves again to you? Or, 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 I know, do we need some kind of reference letter? Do I need refer- How many reference letters would you like from me to know that I'm really an apostle from God? Or, or maybe I can go around Corinth and I can get some reference letters from you. Is that what you really want? Paul's sarcasm is thick. I love Paul. He just kind of lays it on to the ridiculous. 
But it is also part of the continuation of the, of the conversation in chapter 2, 14 to 17. Look at that. This is a continuation in the original letter. There is no chapters or verses and those kinds of things. He says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Note, we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one an aroma from death to death, the other aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity and but from as God we speak Christ in the sight of God. Now we understand why he's asking about the letters of commendation. Because apparently the Judaizers were peddling the gospel. Now what do you mean by peddling the gospel? Making money or selling the gospel. Like a peddler, like a street marketer. Going around and trying to make money. And so within this, Paul says, in contrast to those who were peddlers, we're the fragrance of Christ to God. We are the sweet aroma in doing what God calls us to do, we're not trying to market the gospel. Are there people today that try to market the gospel? You know, I love Christian bookstores because they got some really good books, but they got a whole lot of Jesus junk in it. Where they, where they, you know what the Jesus junk is? You know, like the Jesus bracelet, the Jesus hat, and the Jesus this and the Jesus that, and all this other stuff. They're not a bookstore per se. They have books in them, but they also sell a lot of Jesus junk in there. And within that, you know, there's always this tendency of marketing the gospel or creating a brand of Jesus. Should we market the gospel? No. Should we brand Jesus? No, Jesus has already been branded. It's okay. He's been pierced. That's fine. And so there's this concept of of being in the in-group within this And so within this idea, Paul is saying, I am not selling the gospel, nor like the Judaizers who were selling the false hope of Judaism. Please do not try to sell the gospel. You're not marketing the gospel. Do not create a sales pitch of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all that believes. I can tell you this, God does not need your help to transform lives. Perfectly capable of doing it on his own. You are the conduit and the messenger, the living epistle. All that needs to happen is people need to read you. As God transforms your life from the inside out. People can look at you and go, you're different. In a good way, but you're different. (laughs) What's making you so different? And you can say, well, let me tell you about my Jesus. Let me tell you about what's going on. Now, mind you, Paul had plenty to boast about, didn't he? When you, t- when you take a look at Paul's credentials, he was a Pharisee above Pharisees. He was well-learned. He went to the, 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 the greatest schools, the rabbinical schools. He was self-righteous, and he had plenty to boast about. But he doesn't boast of that. He boasts in Christ. And some people would say, well... What is he talking about then, talking about this whole letter and, and having to commend myself? 
if he's talking about having to commend himself again, isn't he trying to sell himself again? There is a difference between marketing the gospel and giving the credentials of who you are in presenting the gospel. Paul knew that he was an apostle ordained by God, sent unto mission. And that was not self-promotion. It was establishing authority. Paul did not really work on bragging, although he had plenty of reason to brag. And, question, did the church of Corinth really need to understand who Paul was all over again? No, because he founded them. He had been with them multiple times, and within this sharing this message with us, they knew who he was, but he did need to remind them. And so again, he, he doesn't say, well, you know, do I need to give you this, this proof, some elevated degree? It's interesting how many people have, you know, they declare their degrees. I have a, a bachelor's, or I have a master's, or I have a, I have a Ph.D. You know what Ph.D. stands for? Piled high and deeper. It's a bunch of letters. You can have all the degrees you want, but if you're not a practitioner, your degrees mean absolutely nothing within that. Credentials. It's better to have the title of Sunday school teacher than the largest spattering of letters behind your name. Because the Sunday school teacher is the one that is making disciples. That an application is teaching and making disciples and transforming lives. I can tell you this, the, the greatest credential that you can have is not going to be the letters behind your name, but it's going to be the disciples that you've trained that are following Jesus. That's when you know that you are authentic in your ministry. And Paul was extremely authentic. Why? Because he says, look at you. You, Corinth. You are my living letters. You are the ones that have been discipled, that have come to faith. And training people up within this. The other contrast that Paul gives is he states the, the, the source of the message. <clears throat> he says, you're the living letters within this. The letter of Christ and it's cared for by us. That's been manifest to you. And, and you were first written in our hearts, now... Is written in yours, and we care for you within this. Paul had the gospel written into his heart. By who? Jesus. And as Paul, who had the letter of the gospel written into his heart, he went and he empowered other people, and he shared that letter with them, the gospel ministry of his heart, to them with heart, and then they became the living letters, and then Discipleship took place, evangelism took place, and Paul says, you, believer, are my workmanship, my poema, the one that I am working on in bringing to a place of the fullness of the gospel. In fact, in, in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 and 2, we read it, he says, am I not free, am I not an apostle, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Note, are you not my work in the Lord? He's writing this to the very same people. And if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship unto the Lord. What does he say? Your salvation is a direct reflection of the discipleship that I gave to you, that I trained you. Question. 
If Jesus was to ask you right now, who are your disciples, what would your answer be? If he was to say to you right now, how have you reproduced the living letter of the gospel that is written in your heart into the hearts of other people? Could you name them? Who have you trained up to serve the Lord? Because that's our mission. That's our vision and that's our calling. And Paul says, you, church, that, that is who you are. You're the living letter and you're that letter of, that's a result of gospel transformation. Now, what are the aspects of this living letter? Look at verse 3. He says, being manifest that you are this living letter. You're a letter of Christ. That's one aspect. So the transformation is you look more like Jesus. You're conveying the words that Jesus has. Jesus is really the author of the gospel in, in your heart. The second thing that Paul says is you're the result of the ministry. You've been cared for by us. I love the fact that Paul says, I'm not the originator of the letter. Jesus is. You and I, we save no one. We transform zero lives. If I can transform your life, you're really going to be messed up. Jesus does. So Jesus is the author of the transformation, as he says. Paul is the messenger. But how does that transformation exist? How is that living letter written? It's written by the Spirit of God internally. Now, this would fly in the face of the Judaizers. Why? Because the Judaizers believed that legalism was the form of transformation. If I obey enough laws and do enough things right, then my life is going to be transformed. Well, you're going to be like a trick pony. You've done enough things over here, but the heart's not transformed. It's the Spirit of God that transforms that heart, that writes the Word of God into your heart, that gets it embedded in there. And he contrasts that against what? The Ten Commandments. Against the things of stone. Did God write his words on stone? Sure, Mount Sinai. We'll cover that in a bit. With his finger. But how does God write his message today? The Holy Spirit writes it into your heart. The Spirit-led, Spirit-filled believer will walk in the Spirit. And not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He will know God. And he will know the words of God. And the Holy Spirit will interpret the words of God and help you apply them to your life. That's how transformation exists. Ezekiel, God promised to the nation of Israel. Ezekiel 36, 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. And I'll put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And will give you a heart of flesh. That heart of flesh. You say, well, Carrie, what does that look like? It looks like this. When you go about your day, and you have that, that inkling, that intuition to be loving, to be kind, to recognize a need, to be able to pray for somebody, that unction, that's the Holy Spirit talking. When you've done your devotions in the morning, you've read Scripture, and then throughout that day, the very Scripture that you read comes back to your mind. Who does that? The Holy Spirit. And within that, it's the Holy Spirit writing this. The, the transformation doesn't come from a written code of morality. Question. Can you legalize, can you, I'm sorry, can you legislate 
righteousness? Can I pass enough laws to make people do the right thing? Do we try? Whenever something bad happens, what do we try to do? Pass another law. That's insanity. We got enough laws on the books. But what happens? One, they don't enforce the law. But number two, it doesn't matter how many laws I write, I'm not going to change a person's heart. Why? Because it's external morality and it doesn't change the internal heart of man. That's wicked. The unbeliever needs a heart transplant. God's got to take out that heart of stone, give it a heart of flesh, and then the Holy Spirit starts writing on it. And then from that point on, the transformation comes from the root of God and God's Word that is now dwelling in you that produces fruit. And so within that, we take a look at the fruit. You want to know if you're a living letter? Look at the fruit of your life. Trace it back to the source. In fact, you can do that with anything in your life. Look at the fruit of your life. What's coming out of your life? And you can trace it back to a source. And it's either going to be a source of the flesh or it's going to be God. Spiritual fruit or earthly fruit. Further on, Paul goes on to invalidating this ministry in in verses 4 through 6. He says, For such confidence we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Well, first of all, where's Paul's confidence? Is Paul's confidence in him being a good apostle? Is Paul's confidence in his ordination by Jesus? Church of Corinth, you need to listen to me because I'm ordained by Jesus. Is that where his confidence is? No. In fact, he says, I am adequate in myself to do absolutely what? Nothing. I'm not adequate to do anything. This is Paul. This is the guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, saw Jesus, survived so many things. Yet he says, in myself, I'm adequate for nothing. Why? Because he is utterly dependent upon the work of the Spirit. Unlike the Judaizers who thought that they were adequate for everything. Why? Because they had the written moral code and the law. Apart from the work of the Spirit, we cannot do anything. His confidence that he has is through Christ, towards God, and anything that comes from ourselves is nothing. True ministry is by inspiration of the Spirit of God, not perspiration of the work of man. We can work really hard at doing stuff. I have a friend who went to a, a ministry event in Southern California, mega church, mega church. Church is about 30,000 people. Mega church. It was a Father's Day event. And she was there and she was showing me the videotape of all the things. And she said, you know, next Father's Day we need to do this. We need to really do this. Here's the stage. And it's a huge, the stage was bigger than this room. And, and over here is the car show. And over here is the stand for the root beer floats. And over here is the, is the uh, trail mix stuff. And, and over here is this and over here is that. And that was their Father's Day event. Spent a ton of money. Put on the big show. But I wonder how many lives were actually transformed by it. 
We can work really, really, really hard in ourselves. But unless lives are being transformed, we are we're swinging at the air. The goal is the transformed life to be able to do that. Now, that's not to say that we cannot have events or nice things. Things to, to as Billy Graham would say, is the hook. But the goal is not the event. The goal is the transformation and the gospel presentation to be able to be into that place. And dependence on the work of the Spirit. And understand that it's by grace that the ministry takes place, as he would say. The difficulty that he was struggling with is that the church of Corinth was living by the letter of the law. But Paul says in verse 6, that letter of the law kills. You think about that. You think about how this works. This letter of the law kills. Well, what does it mean, letter of the law kills? Well, if you think about the law, what does it really reveal? If you were to live by the Ten Commandments, what does it reveal? You're an utter failure. Why does the Ten Commandments reveal you're an utter failure? Because nobody can keep the law. Well, if I can't keep the law perfectly, then what is the outcome of not keeping the law perfectly? Death. And the wages of sin is what? Death. Therefore, the letter of the law brings death. The letter of the law kills. Why? Because I will fail miserably every single time. Yet, it's the Spirit that gives life. It's the Spirit that helps me to accomplish the goals. It's the Spirit that leads me. Legalism kills. It kills. Why else does legalism kill? Because it give, by abiding in legalism, it gives you a false sense of salvation. If I'm half good enough, then maybe I'm good enough to get into heaven. If I obey most of the laws, then maybe God will grade me on the curve. Is that true? No. Legalists can have a false sense of security. And it will kill. But the Spirit gives life. <clears throat> Paul would write in Romans 7, 6 this, But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which by we were bound, so that we serve in what? Newness of spirit and not the oldness of the letter. Question. Anybody here perfect? No. But how can we connect with God's righteousness? Via the Holy Spirit. If we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill what? The lust of the flesh. Because being led by the Spirit changes the trajectory of our life. It leads us and guides us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. That was His purpose in coming. The paraclete within this. The law cannot save or make you personally holy, but the Holy Spirit guarantees that holiness and that, that righteousness because He's leading you in that place. He's the down payment of that righteousness. And He leads us in what's called progressive sanctification. Being changed, as Paul will get to in a moment. So, okay, question. Is the law bad? No, the law's not bad. In fact, where is the law really good? 
it reveals that I'm a sinner. Because if the law hadn't come, I wouldn't know that I needed Jesus. The law is the measuring stick of perfection and righteousness that I know I'll never measure up to. Which leads me to have to depend on God's grace and God's mercy within that. So, here's another question that Paul asked then. Is the glory of God revealed in the Old Testament law? The answer is yes. Why? Because the glory of God is perfection. And it's revealed in the Old Testament law. But the glory of God is also revealed in the new covenant via the Holy Spirit. Which is that which reveals the, the newness of life. And so that in that new covenant relationship, we can walk in the Spirit and be in that, that connection with God via the Holy Spirit. So we can see the glory of God in the law, the old covenant, working to bring us to a place to see the glory of God perfected in the Spirit. The glory of God in the Old Testament only takes us so far. But the glory of God in the Spirit takes us all the way into the throne room of grace. That's a blessing. It's a question. You want to walk in the, in the oldness of the law that only takes you so far and leaves you short? Or would you rather walk in the newness of the Spirit that takes you all, all the way home? I'd rather be in the newness of the Spirit. Paul goes on and talks about how this living covenant validates Paul's ministry in verses 7 to 18. He says, But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on the stones came with glory, and it did, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of his glory and his face was fading as it was, then how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? And it's a rhetorical question we'll get back to in a minute. But if the ministry of condemnation has glory, and it did, how much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory? Answers a lot. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because the glory that surpasses it, we'll unpack that in a minute, for if that which fades away, the Old Testament law, was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory, this glory of the Spirit. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And we're not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it, removed, it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being present, uh, perfect, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, the Spirit. So what is Paul talking about here? About how the old covenant validates his ministry. Well, within this, the old glory, not the flag, but the old glory that's in the, in the Ten Commandments, that everybody was hanging on to. Question, why would the Jews hang on to the Ten Commandments so much? Why did they hang on to the law 
so deeply. I can tell you why. Tradition. The death knell of a church or any gathering or group of people is, we've always done it that way. Not accepting the new, but their confidence was in the old. And so they were hanging on to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant law that was given by God at Mount Sinai. And, and so with this, Paul does this very smartly. He doesn't focus so much on the legalism, but he focuses on the limited glory that was attached to the Old Covenant. They wanted to be able to remain in this legalism instead of the Spirit because of the written code and the checkoffs. But what else did they have? Moses got this from God. And our fathers and forefathers and forefathers before them said, Moses got these from God himself. Therefore, they are valid. How do we know Moses got them from God? Because Moses was glowing. The account says when Moses went up and he spent time with God face to face, his face was shining. When he came down with the Ten Commandments, he was glowing. Therefore, it must be right. Well, did Moses experience the glory of God? Yes. Was the glory of God so intense that it transformed Moses' countenance to where it would glow? Yes. <coughs> now, what else happened? Did the glory of God stay on Moses permanently? No. It faded. Why did it fade? Because it was a limited exposure with a limited effect. And the commandments and the law has a limited experience. In fact, you can read about it in Exodus 34, um, verses 33 to 35. It says, when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went up before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And then whenever he came out... And spoke to the sons of Israel what had been commanded. The sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shown. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him again. So what would happen? Moses would go and talk to God, and he'd get recharged. He'd start glowing. Kind of like your phone at night, right? And he'd come out, and he'd start talking with people, and, you know, getting a little dimmer, a little dimmer, and he'd put the veil over. Why? Because he didn't want them to see... That, that Shekinah going away. Why? Because this law is limited. It's a ministry of death, as Paul would say. This outcome of the law. And the violation of this law was horrible. Because it would bring about death. We know this because in the first commandments it says, You shall have what? No other gods. How long did it take Israel to violate that? Not very long. And they would do it time and time again. And within this, they would understand that violating this written law would bring a curse. Deuteronomy 27, 26 says, Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Notice what he says. Cursed is the one that doesn't what? Confirm the law by doing them. In other words, set his heart to believe in it by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. So it's a curse not to obey the law. Although the law teaches us of the glory of God, sinful man can't look upon holy things. 
back in these days, could anybody look upon God? No. Do you remember in the temple or in the tabernacle, when the Shekinah glory was there, could anybody go into the Holy of Holies? No. What separated them? A veil. Why? Because sinful man cannot be in the presence of holy God. Can look upon him. Moses was given a pass in a sense of being able to receive this, this temporary transformation, but it was limited. It wasn't meant to be ongoing. And so we see in the giving of the law, and Paul's point is this, the Ten Commandments was not meant to be a permanent solution for mankind. Now, what would this mean to the Judaizers who were pushing the law? It would mean that what you're selling, what you're peddling, has an expiration date. It's not an eternal solution within that. Yet, there is a new glory. And so he asked some rhetorical questions in verse 8. He says, and the ministry of the Spirit... Um, and how will the ministry of the ministry spirit will fail even more of its glory? In other words, if, if it's fading, well, if the ministry of spirit is permanent, will it fail? The answer is no. Just like the old tablets and the old ministry was, was limited, the new ministry is permanent. Why? Moses administered the law. God himself, the Holy Spirit, administers the word of God written on your heart. Question, which one's better? Moses, who's dead? Administering laws that's written on stone? Or God himself, via the Holy Spirit, ministering the word of God that's written on your heart? For sure the latter, within this. Where the law condemns, it's important to understand the Spirit acquits. If you think about what does the law do, the law tells you one thing. You're a sinner, and because you're a sinner, you're going to die. That's what the law tells you. But what does the Spirit do? You're forgiven, and because you're forgiven, you will live. And there is no condemnation, because you're free. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says this. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law is external and says, you're a sinner and you're going to die in your sins. But internally, the Holy Spirit says, you're alive in Christ and you're saved. And you're not condemned. Church of Corinth or Church of WCF, which one do you want to adhere to? The old or the new? The external regulations, moral code, or the internal confidence to know that you're saved and a child of God. Legalism kills. A spirit-led life brings freedom. Freedom within you. And it confirms that. That's why Paul says that the new is better than the old because the glory that the old had was limited, but the Glory that the new has is unlimited. Question. What is the shiny object, the big shiny object that we see at night in the sky? The moon. During the day, can you see the moon 
in the sky. Sure, sometimes. But what outdoes the moon? The sun. Does the moon have its own source of light? It's a reflection of the what? Sun. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, I'm sorry, the Old Covenant is just a reflection of the glory of God. But when the sun came, he outshines the old reflection. You follow? So with the sun, who has his own source of glory, doxa, he outshines anything that is old. This is why legalism doesn't work. And that's why we shouldn't go back to it. But the, the Judaizers were trying to draw them back into this, this moral code that's in this. Now, within this, we've got to understand that, that as Jesus comes, this, this, this glory becomes brighter. The difficulty is that Paul has to address is in this church is the unbeliever. Notice in verses 12 to 18, he says, They're having such a hope, we have this great boldness to speak. We're not like Moses who used to put a veil. We can speak boldly. Moses had to cover the veil because the glory was going away, but we don't have that problem. Moses, When Moses is read, people were veiled. Why is it that people cannot understand the gospel? Because their hearts are veiled by sin, limited. There's some good people, very good people that live via moral code, but they don't understand the things of the Spirit. Why? Because the natural man cannot understand spiritual things. And so their heart is veiled to Christ. And it's not until that veil is removed. Paul's confidence, his hope, is this, that a fully transformed life has boldness. The next time Satan tells you you're not good enough to come before God in his throne room, tell him he's a liar. You don't get to the throne room of God and the throne room of grace because of a moral code. You get there because of Jesus. But there are so many people that say, well, I can't go to talk to God because of my sin. Yes, you can, but Jesus needs to forgive those sins. Confess them, he'll forgive you. <clears throat> Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, represented the old glory. But Paul would say, no, the Holy Spirit is better. Notice verse 16, he says, whenever a person turns to who? The Lord, what happens? The veil is taken away. When you turn to the Lord and you say, Lord, I want to know you. Then God removes that veil. He says, here I am. How do we know that? Because when Jesus died on the cross... The veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Symbolizing the fact that now we have free access. So why don't we enter in? Because in our mind I'm still this sinner that has to abide by a moral code. You don't. You have access. How do I understand that? You pray and say, God, open the eyes of my understanding that I might see you. Pray that prayer. God, open the eyes of my understanding that I might see you. Remove the veil of sin 
You paid the price so that I might know you. If you lift up your eyes and you cry out to Him, you will see God. That's a promise. And the presence of God's holiness that is there to convict is also the presence of God's holiness to encourage. There's a lot of people that are convicted by the presence of God, and they should if their sins remains. But for those of us that have been forgiven, we have freedom to go boldly into the throne of God. And, and the mediator is the Spirit of God that allows us. Notice in verse 17, he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord there is what? Freedom. Now, he's not kind of the brave heart kind of freedom guy, you know, running around with a painted face. That's not the Holy Spirit, but gives us that freedom. Freedom. Do you feel free? Do you feel free? If you don't feel free, ask yourself, am I walking in a place that's under condemnation because of some kind of idea of a moral code or a moral law? The ones that Jesus has made free, they are free indeed. We can walk in that freedom and we can walk with that boldness. We can have that veil removed and we can see God clearly, not like Moses in the Old Covenant. And so there are those that would try to draw you back in into legalism. Don't go. The other aspect that we can see here in verse 18. But we all, notice what he says, with an unveiled face. Notice, who's he talking about? The believer or unbeliever? Unbeliever, or the believer. I'm sorry. The believer. The believer has the unveiled face. But we all, believers, with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord and the Spirit. Moses was a mirror of God's glory under the Old Covenant for the nation of Israel. Who's the mirror of God's glory for the believer? Not a trick question, but I want you to think about it. Who is the mirror or the reflection to mankind of God's glory to the believer? Give me the Sunday school answer. Jesus. Because you know it's always Jesus, right? That's the Sunday school answer. Jesus is the mirror. Remember when Philip asked, he says, show us the Father. And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen who? The Father. Jesus is the reflection of the glory of the Father to us. The reflection of God. If you want to see God, you look at Jesus. He goes on in chapter 4. In the same concept. So, therefore, based on the fact that we are looking unveiled into the glory of God, being transformed into the image from glory to glory, this progressive sanctification where you are being taken. And I can tell you this, as a believer, you should today not be the same person that you were a week ago. You should not be the same person that you were a year ago. You should be a different person. One that is even more sanctified, set apart for God's holy purpose. You should be in a progression of being set apart and growing in your faith and knowledge. You look at Jesus in the mirror and you look at you and you go, not looking like Jesus yet, but I'm going to work on it. I got that wart, right? I got that unicorn right in the middle of my forehead. As James would say, we look in the mirror and we want to remember and deal with it. 
When you get up in the morning, look at, your, look at yourself in light of the mirror and the reflection of Jesus. And what God shows you, work on. The glory that is there. And grow in that faith and the knowledge. The mirror of God's Word. If you're not in God's Word, you're not growing. And I'm glad that you all are here on Wednesday nights journeying through us in the study of God's Word. I was talking with somebody earlier who is backslidden right now, calls me up, life's a wreck. Gary, can I talk to you? Yeah. What's going on? Tells me what's going on. Tells me it's happening. I said, oh, well, how long has it been going on? Tells me how long it's been going on. You know what my next question was? How's your relationship with Jesus? Because I haven't seen you in a while. Well, not very good. You spend time in God's Word? No. You pray? No. Do you think that could have any relationship with where you're at and why you're so screwed up right now? Maybe. I think a little bit more than maybe. What do you think you need to do? I need to ask God to forgive me. I need to ask for forgiveness from others. I need to remove the sin from my life. And I need to get back in the Word. What I wanted to say is, why are you calling for advice from me? You already know what to do. But it was for accountability, which is good. So tomorrow I'll give the individual a call. Did you take care of business? Why? Because you've got you to move in this, this place of, of growing. Paul is challenging them the same way. Reboot your life. Restart your life and get back to the basics, which is look at your life in light of Jesus and make the adjustments that need to be made. So that you will reflect that glory, you'll be that living letter to others. Paul goes on, now continuing to defend his ministry, and, and verses 1 through 6, and he says, look, at this is the ministry that I'm doing. Verses 1 through 6, he says, therefore, since we have this ministry... What ministry? This ministry of transformation, as he said earlier. As we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in the craftiness or adultering of the word. Um, not walking in the craftiness or the adultering of the, of the word, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even in our gospel is unveiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And in, the, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ in the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord. And ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. This is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So Paul goes on, he says, therefore, based on the fact that we are being transformed and we're re reflecting the image of Jesus and this, this ministry of righteousness, we should not get discouraged. Have you ever tried witnessing to family members forever and they don't get saved? You try to talk with people and, and you're like, when are you going to change? When are you going to accept? And you, you're... You, and you get so frustrated or discouraged. 
We have the ministry of reconciliation. So I asked you a question earlier. What motivated Paul to stick with the church of Corinth? What motivates a missionary or a pastor to stick with people, especially when they're rebellious? He says it here in verse 1. As we have received mercy. What do you think he meant by that? As we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Paul understood the great, great mercy that was shown to him. It was from his personal experience of receiving mercy when he didn't deserve it. From that experience of God's long-suffering for him, that while he was a sinner, Jesus died for him. And while he was murdering Christians and putting them in jail, he understand God's great mercy that would call him to such a great ministry. While he was a knucklehead, God was long-suffering towards him. As we've received mercy, I'm not going to be discouraged. But I'm going to keep on keeping on. I'm not going to quit on you. Why? Because God didn't quit on me. We think about that. People get discouraged in their faith. Why do they get discouraged? Because sometimes it takes too long. Sometimes we get discouraged because we don't see immediate results. Sometimes we get discouraged because of hardship. Sometimes we we get discouraged because I really didn't think Christianity was going to be like this. Do you know that Discouragement is one of Satan's greatest tools to get you discouraged, to rob you of that courage. And he says, don't lose heart because of the mercy that you received. And here's the other point. The mercy that Paul says, as we have received mercy, it's past tense. Guess what? You already got it. You've already got all the mercy you need. You've been given the mercy To be saved. Therefore he doesn't lose heart. Yet these Judaizers, as he goes on, and I said we're we're doing it adulterating. And, and, you know, again, he he hacks at these Judaizers because they were preaching the word for financial gain. Literally, a shameful way, prostituting the word of God for money. And Paul calls them out as spiritual deceivers. Their craftiness. Just like the devil, adultering the word, financial gain. Yet they, Paul, were speaking truth. So, question. Is Paul really all that worried about the Judaizers? Not so much. What he says is, I'm going to keep on speaking the truth. Do you realize as a Christian, as a Christ follower, as one that has the word written in, in your heart... The more you speak the truth, the greater the deception is revealed. But if you don't open your mouth, guess what? People are going to believe the deception because there's no contrast. We should speak the truth. But, as Paul would write to the church of Ephesus, speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Speak the truth, yes, in love. Is it okay to debate somebody? 
Yes, in love. Truth in love. Not truth to beat them up. Why? Because Paul says the reason why we've got to do this is because the gospel is veiled to the unbelieving. They, they are perishing because of that. And they're blinded. Why? Because in verse 4 he says the God of this world. Who's the God of this world? Satan. Has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light that is there. Satan has already been defeated. That is true. But he has a limited authority on this world for a period of time. And within that, that's all part of God's sovereign plan. And he has blinded them. And it is the role of the church, the believer, to bring light into this darkness so that they can see. The church for too long has been asleep. And the church for too long has been silent. And the church for too long has been hiding in the shadows and it's time for the church to get out and start sharing the truth of God's Word and the light of God's Word so that the blind can see. Question. If a blind man can't see the sun, does the sun still exist? Sure it does. But how does the blind man know that the sun is there? Can't see it. Only until he gives sight. And so we think about how Satan, this ruler of this earth, has blinded so many people. Is there a spiritual blindness in our world today? Yes. Yes. But we need to speak that truth and we need to pray that the veil would be removed. Paul's not doing a poor job of preaching. Are people in Corinth blinded because Paul was not a good preacher? Were they walking away from the truth because Paul didn't do a good job of discipleship? No. It's because in the absence of truth, lies came in. In the absence of Paul speaking the truth and the church continuing to speak the truth, the lies were coming in. Do we see that in our world today? Yes. I don't know how many pulpits and churches, so-called churches, are not speaking the truth. And when that happens, guess what happens? Lies come in. But the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all that believe. But those that refuse to believe will remain blind. And, it'll be, and they'll remain veiled within that. So what does he say in verses 5 and 6? Preach Jesus. We say, well, I don't, have, I, don't know, I don't have a Bible degree. Doesn't matter. Preach Jesus. Well, I don't know what to do. Are you saved by the mercy of God? If you are, preach Jesus. In verses 5 and 6 is we do not preach ourselves. And I can, you know, parenthetically say, people don't care what you think. We don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus as Lord. Ourselves are your bondservants. Preach Jesus, serve others. That's how they're going to know. Preach Jesus and serve others. And let that light shine into darkness. I, I love the fact that Paul uses this analogy of creation. What was the first element in creation? Light came into darkness. John 1.5 says the light shines into the darkness. Darkness didn't comprehend it. When Jesus came, light came into darkness. 
in your darkness of the world that's around you, bring Jesus into it, into your work, in your homes, in your recreation. Bring Jesus. Preach Jesus. He's the light of God within this. And light is always this type of holiness that is there. Paul goes on to defend his ministry and his dedication. Look at verses 7 to 15. Poor Paul, I am so glad I am not called to Paul's ministry. That guy got whooped on. Verses 7 to 15, he says, but we have this treasure. What treasure? Jesus. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness and the power uh, will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we who, are, who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that, purpose clause, why are we being persecuted? So that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will, be raised, will raise us also with Jesus and present with you. For all these things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound the glory of God. What does Paul say? Well, first of all, he says it's God's power through this vessel. He uses this analogy of a jar. So I want you to imagine a clay jar, the lid. And you take a light and you put it inside that clay jar and you put the lid on top. Question, can you see the light that's in the jar when the jar is enclosed with the top on it? Can you see it? No. What happens if I took a hammer... And I hit the side of the clay jar and I started putting holes inside this clay jar. Can you see the light? The more holes, the more broken the earthen vessel becomes, the more light is revealed. What is the analogy that Paul is saying? We have this treasure in earthen vessels. But as this earthen vessel is broken, persecuted, struggle, it is the light of Christ that should be revealed out through the cracks, which makes us all crackpots. <laughs> I just had to say that. But you think about this. We've been given a light to shine in this vessel, but Paul goes through in a series of contradictions and he says, look it, I've been afflicted but not crushed. I've been perplexed, but not dispirited, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed, always carrying around this body of death, this body that's dying. So why? So Jesus could be revealed. That's why I can count it all joy when I go through diverse trials and temptations, because it's for the glory of God within this. Why? Because we have this resurrection hope. Notice in verse 11, he says, we are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that 
The life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh, so death works in us, but life in you. In other words, because of our persecutions, you're hearing the testimony of God. This coach in Washington decided he wanted to pray after a football game. Just go out after a football game and go pray. Other people wanted to join him to pray. Loses his job. Case goes to Supreme Court. I don't even know what the... I, don't even, I heard they're ruling on it, but I don't know what the answer is yet. But he lost his job. Persecuted. But he's sharing the gospel. And we think about that. Another light is shining, but it's part of the persecution. Yet we have this living hope within us. All of these things were happening so that they would know the Jesus who raised us up and, and know that Jesus is there. Paul quotes out of Psalm 116.10. He says, I believe when I said I am greatly afflicted. It was a Thanksgiving psalm of the psalmist that says, look, at, I am afflicted, but yet I have this living hope. What is the living hope? The living hope is regardless of how poorly I'm treated here or how much persecution I go here, my living hope is this, that Jesus is going to come back and take me home. We read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17. It says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord. How long? How long? Always. For those of you that know Mary Jo Simpson, she graduated to be with the Lord this morning at 1 o'clock a.m. Had the privilege of being with the family and with Mary Jo and watched her slip off as, as she joined her husband who had passed earlier this year, Richard. Sad for us. Happy? Absolutely. Lucky dog, she got there before me. This is a gal who has struggled with cancer for eight years. Eight years. Had cancer in the brain, cancer in her body. And she is set free. You think about that. And I sat in the room with her family members. And that broken vessel had been preaching Jesus for so long with those family members. Wendy and I were there and... and and, and Sonia was there, right? And she was preaching the gospel, laying in the bed. Right? She didn't know it, but she was. We were in that, and that, that, the family members were there, and we got to pray a couple times with them and the whole bit. That's what Paul's talking about. To remind us the fact that these earthen vessels, they're going to go away. But we can rejoice in the Lord. He finalizes it with this, and we'll end with this. And then close in verses 16 to 18. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are are eternal. This outer man is perishing, is it not? 
Yeah, I've watched it multiple times. Where people die and the body perishes. But for the believers, what do they see? Not the temporal, they see the eternal. That's the goal. That's our hope. Don't let anybody sucker you back into some form of legalism standard of, of, of obeying these laws, but live in the freedom of the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, and enjoy the blessings of the Spirit. And be that living letter of the Gospel that the Holy Spirit would write on your heart that you can write on, that He can write on others' hearts as you share them. Let's go ahead and let's close. God, I thank You. I thank You for the fact that we could be in this place. We can honor You with our voices, with our lives, with our worship, with Your Word. God, we pray that we would be set free from the bonds of sin, sorrow, suffering, and shame. I thank you that Mary Jo has been set free. Richard's been set free. Velma's been set free. Lord, all these seasoned saints, Walt, a number of them have graduated to be with you. Yet, Lord, you leave us here. Why? so that we would be that living letter of the gospel of peace and love. To those that are perishing, we pray that you would open the eyes of their understanding, that they might see you, Lord Jesus. We thank you in Jesus' name. Let's all stand. You unravel me with a melody. You surround me with of deliverance from my enemies till all my fears are gone. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God.
Lots of things going on. Let me pray. God, we do thank you that we are your children. And as we heard from your word tonight, we are free. And uh, we ask that you would help us to um, walk in our freedom and to uh, be that light that you ask us to be. That we are light and salt to this world. And may we reveal your glory to those that see us. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Praise Jesus. We'll see you on Sunday. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.